I'm Pablo Destere. This is Jeremy Robert Johnson. Hi, this is Pela Villa. Hi, this is Nikki Gerlain. This is Todd Brown. This is S.G. Brown. Hi, I'm Paul Tremblay. This is M.C. Funk. Hey, this is John Horner Jacobs. This is Benjamin Whitmer. This is Matthew McBride. This is Fred Venturini. Hey, this is Janet Hale. This is uh, Craig Wolwick. Hey, Anthony Neal Smith here. This is Caleb J. Ross. This is Craig Clevenger. Hi, this is Chris Deal. Uh, guys, this is Doug O'Donnell. Hi, I'm Joshua Allen Deach. This is Sean Ferguson. Hi, this is Amanda Gowan. Hi, this is Alan Guthrie. Hey there, this is Gordon Highland. Hi, my name is Anthony David Jakes. Hi, this is J. David Osborne. Hello, this is Stephen Graham Jones. This is Nick Corpon. This is Max Barry. Hi, this is Michael Paul Gonzalez. Hi, I'm Bob Pastrella. Hey, this is Donald Ray Pollock. Hi, I'm Axel Terry. This is Richard Thomas. And you are listening to Book. And you're listening to Book. And you're listening to Book. And you're listening to Book. And you are listening to Book. I came and listened to the Book podcast. Everybody is getting booked because it's the place to be. Check out Book with the two most handsome men on the internet. I myself don't read either, as Rob and Livius do so much a better job of that than I could here on the Book podcast. You're listening to the best fucking podcast on the planet. And you're listening to Booked. And you're listening to the Booked Podcast, which is way better than being on fire. And you are listening to the coolest fucking podcast on the planet, Booked. And I've learned all I know about writing from Olivia Sneedon and Rob Olson of Booked Podcast. Listen to the Booked Podcast. You are listening to Booked Podcast. You're listening to Booked Podcast. You are listening to Booked. And you're listening to... The Filthy Boys at Booked Podcast. And right now, the Booked Podcast is making love to your ear. And you're listening to Booked. And you are listening to Booked. And you're listening to Booked. These guys are fucking great. And you are listening to the Booked Podcast. And you're listening to the Booked Podcast. And you are listening to Booked. You should listen to Booked Podcast. You're listening to Booked. And you are listening to Booked. And you're listening to Booked. And you're listening to Booked. And uh, you're listening to Booked Podcast. And you're listening to Booked Podcast. Booked Podcast is what we listen to all the time. You should too. Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livius Nedden. So, Rob, it's a new year, and we have a new book. How cool is that? It's very, very exciting. So, um, a couple of things uh, I'd like to mention. First of all, uh, in a minute, we'll be talking about our special guest host, but I'd like to point out that on our year-in-review episode, we promised more interviews. I want to clarify. I don't mean just more interviews. I mean more people on the show with us. So, I am uh, thinking this is a great kickoff for us to have a guest host. That's right. And before we get into talking about the guest host, I'm going to talk about something that you heard introducing this episode. Um, in the spirit of trying to have more guests on in all types of manifestations, I cut together all of the little introduction uh, sound clips from all the authors we've had on so far that were nice enough to give us those, and I, I pieced it all together. And That's what you heard <laughs> probably for like the first minute and a half or two minutes of the episode. By far the coolest. So I've seen a lot of montages for 2012, that was the coolest montage. I I guess I didn't see it, but I heard it. You get what I'm saying. Pretty awesome, right? It is very awesome. You know, you don't realize it. Just hearing them, you know, one at a time, you know you've got them. But hearing them all piled together like that is unbelievable. That's right. Well, back to, I'm going to go really quickly into what we're reviewing. Uh, Livius will tell you a little bit about the book, and we'll go from there. Um, the book we're reviewing this week is uh, Gun Machine by Warren Ellis. So uh, here's his author bio that we pulled, I believe, as always, from Amazon. Warren Ellis is one of the most prolific, read, and admired graphic novelists in the world and the creator of Transmetropolitan and The Authority. 
He lives in southern England with his partner Nikki and their daughter Lilith. He never sleeps. He's also the author of the novels Crooked Little Vein and Gun Machine, which we're going to be talking about tonight. So a quick little bit about Gun Machine. After a shootout claims the life of his partner in a condemned tenement building on Pearl Street, Detective John Tallow unwittingly stumbles across an apartment stacked high with guns. When examined, each weapon leads to a different, previously unsolved murder. Someone has been killing people for 20 years or more and storing the weapons together for some inexplicable purpose. Confronted with the sudden emergence of hundreds of unsolved homicides, Tallow soon discovers that he's walked into a veritable deal with the devil, an unholy bargain that has made possible the rise of some of Manhattan's most prominent captains of industry, a hunter who performs his deadly acts as a sacrifice to the old gods of Manhattan, who may, quite simply, be the most prolific murderer in New York City's history. Gotta say, that sounds like a pretty awesome story. That is a very cool premise, and if anybody didn't catch this before, I know we've mentioned this book on the show several times, but Crooked Little Vein is, just thinking about this over the last week, if I really sat down and comprehensively came up with a top ten list of my favorite books, I'm thinking Crooked Little Vein might just sneak under the radar at number ten. Yeah, it was a pretty awesome book. Put on my radar, put on my radar uh, by Livius, as always. He was the one that was always introducing me to good books, so... I decided to ride his good taste into a, a, a good podcast. <laughs> I, um, I been excited about a lot of books that have been coming up, but I have been waiting for years. Like it's five years now for, for Warren Ellis to do another novel. And, and here it is. But, uh, we're not reviewing it alone. We're in the spirit. We're kicking it off. We're hitting the ground running in the spirit of, uh, having more, um, authors on the show. We, we got someone, we announced it last week, we, we announced who it was going to be, but we got someone to come on and talk about the book with us. Paul Tremblay, like we said last week, is uh, uh, who's going to join us uh, to talk about the book, and here's his bio that we pulled from his website. Paul Tremblay is the author of the novels The Little Sleep, No Sleep Till Wonderland, and Swallowing a Donkey's Eye, and the short story collections Compositions for the Young and Old, and In the Meantime. He's published two novellas, and his essays and short fiction have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, FiveChapters.com, and Best American Fantasy Three. He's a co-editor of four anthologies, including Creatures, 30 Years of Monster Stories, with uh, John Langan. Paul is the president of the Board of Directors for the Shirley Jackson Awards. Hmm. All right, Paul, welcome back to Booked, and thanks for taking, uh, we put you to work this time. We made you read a whole book just to come back on. You guys are harsh taskmasters, <laughs> but uh, I'm very happy to be back. All right, so Gun Machine is the book that we read this week, as we just uh, as you just heard us read the synopsis. Um, yeah, pretty crazy stuff, but uh, it gets it gets started out. Um, essentially, you have a, a, a pair of police officers who are responding to a call, um, kind of begrudgingly, and then uh, once they get to the building, they're called to kind of where where I guess there's a guy that's naked with a shotgun threatening people. Um, things just kind of go crazy. I hate when that happens. <laughs> Every time I end up in a building where there's a guy naked with a shotgun, no, it doesn't end well. <laughs> no, it never does. And that's really the catalyst for our, our hero, um, Detective Tallow, who then, in order to make sure that all the other apartments are, are clear and, and you know that nobody's hurt, um, kind of breaks into this apartment. And what oh, he finds wait. is... You skipped over the part where his partner gets killed. I may have skipped over the part where his partner gets killed. That's <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean that happens in every uh, police procedural in the first chapter, doesn't it? That the yeah. <laughs> uh, that the main policeman's uh, partner gets killed. 
Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, my yeah. my first bitter comment about the book. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Ooh, the first one. That implies there might be at least one more. All right, so. Yeah. I mean, I will say, I mean, I'll let you continue, but I will say I'm probably going to come off sounding a lot more angry about the book than I am in reality because it did for me pass the ultimate uh, test of fiction. It kept me entertained. You know, and there wasn't any point where I, I, I wanted to give up reading. But anyway, let's go back to the, <laughs> to the synopsis. <laughs> so Tallow's partner is killed, as Rob pointed out. Um, Tallow breaks in this apartment. What he finds is a ran- about 200 guns all mounted on the wall in various patterns. And it's just an apartment that's pretty much devoid of furniture and, and just contains weapons. Yeah, it's essentially like a church to guns almost is kind of how it's described. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think, uh, the, I think the NRA is advocating that all apartments now <laughs> look like this. <laughs> um, and so, essentially, and, and this is again kind of in the in the spirit of the the true police procedural. Um, yeah, once he kind of busts open this apartment, there's no going back from it. And now, um, the police are going to have to you know investigate why there's this apartment full of guns and run tests on them. And um, in the in the in the course of doing so, they start becoming uh, tied to unsolved murders, and essentially the entire police force just uh, hates this guy now because he's reopened a bunch of murder cases by finding this apartment full of guns. So he's like immediately on the shit list of everybody in New York City, basically. Did this strike either one of you guys as a little kind of odd? He's basically ostracized by everybody for happening upon you know what what is going to very obviously turn out to be like the biggest serial killer in in the history of new york probably the united states i mean we're we're talking about what 200 unsolved murders um did it strike you guys as a little over the top that everyone hated this guy i mean Uh, absolutely i that was one uh, sorry rob but i'll say i mean to me that was one of the biggest problems in the early going was you know i never I, i never bought it that you know, his, you know, his boss and the chief would be so upset with him, like trying to solve all these crimes. Like, wait a minute, isn't that what they're there to do? <laughs> um, I, so I, I really had a hard time with that part of, uh, or that part of the conceit of well, everything being so stacked against him. The way that I, and all right, so I, <laughs> just to get this out of the way early on, I'm probably <laughs> going to be kind of the cheerleader for the book a little bit more sure. than these other two guys. But, uh, the way that I saw it is like, essentially like, uh, from the perspective of everybody who then is is affected by the case, they're essentially in a position where if they don't get it right or they don't do it fast enough or anything goes wrong, everybody looks bad and nobody wants to deal with that. They don't want the extra work and they don't want the possibility of, of things going wrong. So that's probably that's why I perceive them to be so upset with him. Which is possible. I mean, don't, don't get <laughs> yeah. me wrong. Listen, in a way, if one of my coworkers makes it so that I have any extra work whatsoever, I'm ready to murder him. So I can kind of understand from that standpoint. But um, as police officers, I mean, it's their job. It's kind of like if you didn't go in that apartment, none of these murders would have happened. And that was yeah. the part that I had kind of a, a, a an issue making the logical jump to it's your fault that, you know, that we're doing this. Right, and particularly given, as you said, Liv, um, sort of the scope of what this, these crimes encompass. I mean, one of the largest mass murderers or, or serial killers, you know, never mind the history of New York City, but probably in the history of the United States. Um, so, yeah, 
Uh, I'm with Liv on that one. Team Liv. Go Team Liv. <laughs> wow. We're this has never, off. ever happened, ever. <laughs> no ever. Has there never. been a Team Liv? <laughs> so, you're excellent. So. I will say this about this particular plot point, though. I didn't read um, the synopsis for this book. I was immediately sucked into this. So every weapon is paired to one unsolved murder. So I would completely the concept blew me away. I thought it was fantastic. So so this part, regardless of how the police felt about him, totally sucked into this premise of the book. I agree. I think that that conceit in and of itself is definitely um, is a brilliant conceit. I, I will certainly give Ellis that. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And then like delving further into it when he kind of the investigation continues and he discovers more about the pattern of of the specific person who's killed and and their relationship to the gun that's used. Oh, that's just excellent, if you ask me. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the strongest part of the book is sort of uh, the cleverness uh, of the tying of the history of New York City and the history of the, the victims and even history of the guns themselves together. Absolutely, that works. We're introduced very early on to the antagonist in this book who's referred to as the hunter throughout the vast majority of the book. Um, and we kind of go, I don't want to say necessarily back and forth, because it's definitely not like a 50-50 split between what's going on with, with Tallow and what's going on with the Hunter, um, but maybe like a 70-30. So we bounce back to him and what kind of is driving him and, and you know, the, the kind of world that's inside of his head. So we're, we're flipping back and forth a little bit. You see it from both sides. This is not um, a, a mystery um, so much as a police procedural. So we see what the villain's doing. We, we know what his motivations are. I mean, they're kind of revealed throughout the course of the book, but it's not it's not a whodunit. We know who done it right from the get-go. Right, which in a way, I mean, uh, I will say, I think that um, that makes it, I think, more difficult for the author, for Ellis to, to have that narrative tension because there isn't a mystery. I mean, there is still a mystery as to why, like all the guns, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So there is a small, not a small mystery, but there is some mystery to that. But I do think he did a, a decent job with you know, still having the narrative tension between the hunter and what he may or may not do, uh, given that we know sort of what he's thinking, you know, even a little bit about what he's planning. Yeah. Um, to me, and I don't know if you guys felt the same way, but um, the the kind of more, conf not confounding, but the thing that, like, the, the mystery that un unfolded uh, in respect to the hunter was what the hell was going on with him because um, – you're, you're just seeing what he's seeing in the moment. You don't really have any kind of backstory on him. So you're kind of discovering life through his weird perspective. And you don't know whether it's something like legitimately supernatural or if there's just something weird or off about the dude, if that's yeah. not spoiling too much. No, I don't think so. I mean, um, I think even one of the blurbs from, geez, I can't remember, one of the cover blurbs uh, mentioned uh, that this book sort of goes into like dark fantasy territory. Mm -hmm. um, although, I mean, when you read the whole book, I don't know if that, that is ultimately the case. I mean, uh, going off on a tangent here, there's some hints to like some near future stuff. Did you guys catch this? Like yes. even like in the first chapter, uh, that really sort of threw me for a loop. And it, I felt like it didn't add anything. And if anything, I was like reading through the book. I'm like, wait a minute. You know, he mentions like this closed circuit television system in, the, in <laughs> New York City and all these like crazy murders going on, but then he's talking about his car with the CD player. I'm like, wait, wait a minute. If you're going to go near future, let's go near future. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I do think that added, I mean, in one sense, I think it added to a little bit of the whole, as a reader, I felt like, okay, I'm, 
even though it's New York City, and I do think he does a good job with New York City, I did felt like I was on like shifting unsafe ground in terms of like, you know, anything like weird or crazy could happen, which was probably his goal, I guess, for the near future stuff. <laughs> well, I think that uh, by virtue of the fact that we kind of know most of like what typically would be a mystery, we needed to be a little disoriented in order for like, you know, the story to have some sort of like, you know what I'm saying? Some sort of punch to it. Yeah. But I mean, that could just be me. I don't want to get. I don't want to digress too far from the story, but Paul brought up an interesting point. So this is um, a lot of history of New York, um, a lot of detailed geographically of New York. Now, I've never been to New York, so I don't know how accurate it was. But this got <laughs> me to thinking, Warren Ellis, based on his bio from Wikipedia, uh, born, raised, and lives in England. Um, it's an interesting choice, and probably I felt like it was really, really well done. Had I not have known who he was, I don't. I, I would have thought he was somebody who you know grew up in New York or has some some very you know strong love for that area. The the way he treated New York, almost like like a like a secondary character in the book. Yeah, I'm, I'm by no means a uh, an expert in New York City. You know, I've been a handful of times, but uh, you know, I would in the large part I would agree um, with that. Although, you know, I was never, and part of it was, it was Tallow's character himself, but I thought, you know, uh, I didn't think he was a fully drawn character for my taste. So, you know, as far as like what was his attachment to New York City, you know, I never sort of, never got that. I that was a sort of a missed opportunity to, to further sort of make New York City seem more realistic. Because Tallow just seemed like so detached from everything that was happening, you know, including his whole life. Um, but anyway, I keep, I turning us further afield <laughs> from <laughs> no, the historical true. topic. But no, I, I agree. I think you know, the history part was interesting, which was why the further I went to the book, I kept scratching my head about these little asides about these near futuristic hints. Uh, it just didn't, didn't work for me. I'm like, kind of, you know, you have a cool conceit with uh, the guns rearranged and almost this, um, you know, in this, uh, you know, sort of religious way. And then you have all the connections to Manhattan and to New York city of the past. And then I, don't know, I felt like it, needlessly complicated things when it didn't need to be that complicated with the near future stuff speaking of of new york and everything <laughs> there's there's one part that i don't know whether it it made me kind of it disenchanted me to the whole new york thing or or if it rang a little more true but there's a part where he goes and visits uh the the they go and have dinner at one of the the co-workers houses and he goes to part of the city that I apparently had he hadn't really gone to before and um, he was astounded that there was, like, parking available. And the whole idea was, like, it was as if, like, people were hiding this excellent part of the city from him the whole time. And a part of me was like, ah, oh, damn it. But then the other part of me was, like, having lived in, you know, Chicago in within the city proper for a long time, I'm sure there's neighborhoods that if I went there, I'd be like, this exists. So it kind of rung true. But at the same time, it was like, eh, I don't know. Um, moving into some of the other characters where I'm sure there's going to be a wealth of discussion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we go. I know where you're going with this. Tallow is kind of light. I know I say he's partnered, but one of the entities is CSU, which I'm assuming is crime scene unit. I don't even know if that was ever really truly said, but basically they're the, the forensics people. Right. And he, he's, uh, he manages to team up with Bat and Scarly. Scarly being um, some type of... Uh, I don't even know, not division chief, but some higher up in the CSU ranking and in bat being her right hand, you know, geeky guy that uh, that you need at a good CSU right. office. 
Um, so they're he's partnered one, with them. Mm-hmm. I was just say they're the Wonder Twins in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So he's partnered with them, who, of course, they have the same disdain for him initially. But as they get sucked into this this mystery of of, of what's going on with these guns, you know, they they soften the tallow a little bit and, and become his his compatriots in this in this adventure. So how do you feel about them, though, Livius? <laughs> Say it. <laughs> here's here's my biggest issue with this book and i'm going to touch back a little bit i mentioned crooked little vein at the top of the show so crooked little vein was this book that was written kind of tongue-in-cheek there was like an alien element there was all these sexual extremists that are met um during the course of this adventure so we flipped a gun machine which has this great premise and is a very very serious book regardless of you know what you thought of the character development of tallow He's this cop who's pretty much, you know, he's he's checked out. You know, he's not even interested in being a cop, but his partner's murdered. He gets saddled with this case. It's a very, very serious book. And then these two goofy fucks show up <laughs> <laughs> that were were just yeah. they were really over the top. And the reason I mentioned Crooked Little Vein is I was thinking back to how much I love that book. And I thought they would have been perfectly at home in that book. And I would have accepted them and embraced them as characters in the scope of a book that was written a little tongue in cheek. The premise of this book was very, very serious. And I just kind of wasn't buying the whole, everyone at CSU is crazy daredevil nutcases. You know, they share some stories of things that happened and I, I just, I couldn't buy it. No, I, I, if anything, I, I could sort of understand because this book is so serious. You want to have a little comic relief just to lighten mm-hmm. sort of what was going yeah. on. But I, I thought they weren't even that funny. Like, I, I wanted to punch myself in the eyeball every time I read, uh, you know, Scarly's <laughs> joke about being autistic. Yeah. Yep. It's like, that, that's, that's not funny. I, the, there was no timing to it. It was, it was just because you say it, you know, loudly and with fucking in front of it, you know, I don't know. It doesn't make a character. It didn't make it funny. So, uh, again, I'm on Team Liv with, on this one. Um, <laughs> My biggest beef with specifically the autistic joke is, the very first time that that he delivers it in the book, he immediately explains it from Tallow's perspective, as if <laughs> Tallow is like realizing what they're doing, right? And and like <laughs> like the reader needs to know because it's like an inside joke or something. I was like, ah, oh, come on. <laughs> I, I'd like to share with you guys and and with the audience. I believe this is the first line that Scarlet has in the book. She says to Tallow, "You said Scarlet." I hate you so much. My dick is hard. <laughs> this is this is a woman. Granted, we find out that she's a lesbian, and I don't know a whole lot about lesbians, so maybe maybe someone can help me out here. I'm pretty sure that they don't have the equipment. They don't, but I could see. I, I've met some lesbians. I could see saying that. But and that's just the kind of thing that that goes back to what I said about everybody hating this guy like being that overt with their hatred. And then, you know, it carries on to the every time she's screaming, she she uses the the fact that she's autistic as a defense, which she isn't autistic. I guess I should correct myself there. But it was just that type of thing that, that there wasn't any seriousness in these people at all or not enough. And I'm okay with them being a little funny. And I know people that can take tense situations and kind of joke about them. But it just seemed like it seemed like they, they came off a little clownish to me. Yeah, I mean, and. If- to me, I agree, enforced, sort of contrived. I mean, I kind of feel like, you know, because he was doing a police procedural, he sort of willingly took a lot of the cliches, you know, that you would see in it. Uh, in the, he wanted to mix it up and, you know, put a lot of stuff in their head. But I don't know. They, to me, those two characters especially came off as a cliche. They're sort of 
you know, the goofy side characters who, who are basically only there to try to, to make, you know, to make people laugh and maybe, you know, serve as, um, you know, some plot forwarding or, you know, clue finding, et cetera. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I certainly was not on board with that or Scarly. And, you know, not to, to get too far ahead in the plot or ruin anything for anybody, but, you know, it's getting toward the end of the book. I don't know if you guys remember this or if it struck you like it struck me. It's getting toward the end. You know, the hunter is sort of on Talos' tail. There's going to be this big confrontation, and he knows it. And they're like, ah, oh, let's go to Scarlet's house for dinner because we're going to meet her wife. <laughs> and I was like, what? Like, she's like, no, it's really important. You have to come to dinner. That seemed a little bit forced. I'll agree with you. And I'll, I'll, I'll. Anyway. I'll team live you on that one. I think they were a little more cartoonish than they needed to be. Um, I don't necessarily know. I mean, basically from there, Scarly, Bat, and and Tallow at the lead investigate, and and you know more more comes of it. And obviously, as it unfolds, there's some other kind of peripheral characters that get involved, and we see a bigger story. So, without spoiling anything else, is there anything else anyone wants to say on just kind of what the plot was? Can I can I jump in and say I realize, Paul, what you're doing by saying team live. You're putting all the blame on his door, and I admire you for that. <laughs> no, I'm a team player. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I think, yeah, plot-wise, really, there's not much more. I mean, we didn't really talk too much about uh, in the in the synopsis. Uh, it basically says the whole deal with the devil thing, where there was an unholy bargain that has made possible the rise of some of Manhattan's most prominent captains of industry. That whole thing. Um, there are some, I guess the only thing we really need to say is that there are some what would be kind of heavy hitters in some different um, parts of the city, whether it's government or, or you know, um, you know, private industry or whatever that tie in with the overall plot of the story. But I mean, to me, they were just kind of boring characters, so I don't really care if we talk about them at all. I, I would have to agree. I mean, they were, they were a means to an end, and which is fine. I mean, that did explain away, you know, some of the, you know, the the hunter's motivation, I guess. But yeah, not not a whole lot to say there. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, so yeah, talking about stuff like little things in general, and and Paul, you you mentioned this with characters, but the one of the all right. So I had very few objections to this book because I just kind of. <laughs> I let myself, you know, I, I was, I just let myself go down the river. I, I wasn't, you know, too concerned. I just was along for the ride. But there were certain parts of the book that were so very obviously introduced just to forward certain elements of the plot that they really threw, like that throws me off and it takes me out of the story. Uh, my example would be <laughs> like, the, I think it was even the first time that uh, Tallow makes it down to the, to the CSU office when, uh, the chick's got a her hates him so much that her, her dick is hard. Um, <laughs> they he kind of looks around the place and he sees a bucket with some paintball equipment, and it's at one point there's a robot that you know is saying obscene things and right. you know that type of thing. Um, again, at the time I, I I was just like yeah whatever you know, but then they're they're so obviously used later in the book, and I'm like oh yeah that's why he said that earlier it was just so that he could do this later on. That kind of stuff bothers me. Yeah, I mean, I, there definitely was a lot of uh, contrivance or convenience to like a few of the aspects. I mean, even the opening, which I bought, like because it was interesting to have that naked, crazy shotgun guy. But I mean, the real, actual part of the story he discovers by accident. Mm -hmm. You know, that's sort of not that I'm, you know, uh, a rule follower per se as a writer. But I mean, sort of when you're writing a mystery or a police procedure, you want to kind of keep the uh, contrivances and lucky conveniences to a minimum. 
Um, but at least he started off his convenience with a you know really in a really interesting way. Mm-hmm. I am going to. I debated on on mentioning this as a plot point, but when we're talking about conveniences and coincidences, and there is a scene, and it's later in the book, so I'm going to be very kind of vague about this, but I want the listeners to to get an idea of what I'm talking about. So we talked about these captains of industry that are you know, from the synopsis very obviously involved. So I don't, I don't think I'm giving anything away there. So Tallow had already met one of them and, and knew there might be some involvement. But Tallow's walking out of a sandwich shop and there's a woman who may or may not be being accosted by a homeless man right. who he scares off the homeless man and goes to check to make sure the woman's okay. And it turns out that she's this other person, this captain of industry's wife right. in New York City population they they have what three four hundred thousand people at least living there probably like eight million yeah Yeah. so he runs into the way and of course she becomes you know a small but kind of like an integral part of of what goes on through the course of the the rest of the book and i mean like the coincidence is i I would buy that we we just finished reviewing um a repairman jack book a couple of weeks ago from f paul wilson Mm -hmm. and part of the the plotting of that that you know series is is this kind of supernatural thing where things are put in front of the main character constantly he's put into these situations for a reason this wasn't a supernatural book there was no there were no elder gods you know placing people in tallow's path so for him to you know just randomly run into somebody that becomes an integral part of the story Ugh, that was that was probably the biggest stretch. That that probably hurt me a little more than the than the CSU um, you know comedy troupe. No, I agree. That was definitely very bothersome. Like I said in the beginning, at least that contrivance was entertaining. But you know what you described was just you know laughable as you and you know for the reasons that you uh, detailed. <laughs> was that okay? <laughs> and and this this is so insignificant to the story that I don't care if it if it doesn't really matter if it spoils it, but. So the sa- <laughs> the sandwiches that he was getting at that place is that the one? <laughs> are those the sandwiches that actually later on caused them to have to go have dinner? At the yes, the, yes. Those? <laughs> even that I guess is all. Awesome. So like at least he had the the <laughs> the conviction <laughs> uh-huh. to carry that, that part. To right. carry that storyline on later <laughs> into the book. The Can sandwiches I... of fate. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the, the without without those sandwiches, um, it's this... hard. <laughs> go on. It's hard, and, and I mean, you touched on it a little bit, Paul, but you've written much longer fiction and stuff. I mean, is it necessary if there is an item available, I mean, to you? Do you think it's necessary to 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 let the reader know ahead of time that this item may be available to you? Like mentioning a hammer that someone, you know, that, that falls off a counter so that four chapters later someone could pick up that hammer and bash someone in the head? I mean... Do you think that takes away as a writer? Do you think it takes away or do you think, you know, what, what your opinion on making sure that that the sandwiches are there because <laughs> they're the yeah, reason the for elements. dinner later? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I guess I'm mean, part of it's like how sort of how you sort of maybe slip it in there. Maybe. Uh, wow. That sounded awful. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm cutting that uh, one out later yeah. and it's going to loop at the end. <laughs> awesome. That was, that was for Ferg. Um, <laughs> So with the with the whole paintball thing, I do think like if he had just said, oh, you know, later on in the book when they ended up, you know, using sort of you know the robot paintball thing, without giving away too much, um, you know, if he had just said, oh, hey, look what I have in my you know lab here, and it was like this really kind of strange stuff that they end up using, I think that would be like, hey, 
isn't that sort of weird that he just has this here? So I didn't have as huge an issue with them, him sort of uh, putting the the paintball material earlier in the story just to be like, oh, you know, that came out of nowhere type of thing. But, um, you know, it's hard. I mean, you sort of, there's sort of, uh, what's that, Chekhov's rule? Like, if you have a gun in the story, it's going to have to be used at some point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, it's just, this is a police procedural more than a mystery. I mean, even though there are elements of mysteries, you try not to balance. Like, do you want to have red herrings? Do you want to throw as much information as possible? But at the same time, you don't want to over- overwhelm the reader. So, you know, in a lot of ways, I do think um, for as much grief, like literary readers or... Or, or readers who don't necessarily read mystery or, or crime fiction can sort of look down their noses at crime fiction. I think that is, you know, a legitimate and difficult challenge when writing crime is, you know, how much information you're going to give, when you're going to give it, how are you going to give it? So I know how difficult that can be having written a couple of crime novels. So, you know, I, I'm, I guess I, I should be more willing to cut some slack to Ellis on, on that part of it. Um, and I am for, for his sort of the hints that he puts out there for, uh, the different evidence or the different things that crop up later, but I'm I'm not going to cut him some slack for some of the, the lack of character development, some of the <laughs> some of the really bad dialogue, especially early. I don't know if you guys, if that bothered you, or if you picked up on it at all. Um, geez, there's a couple of times I, I didn't even understand the. Uh, let's see if I can find it. I didn't even understand what she was saying or how what kind of sentences we're using here. Maybe this is still like a on edited arc that we're reading. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys talk. I gotta find where that oh, is. Oh, that reminds me though, Olivia, it's the thing you were talking about before with uh mm-hmm. yeah, the you, you can pose this one. It's yours. Yep. I, I I'm gonna let him look because I it just occurred to me that and I don't know, maybe I'm just not a real sharp reader, which is totally possible. I realized that, you know, as we were talking about the scenario and I said something about a hammer, like if I see a hammer in a movie or, or a TV series it's like I know that what that hammer is going to be used again. I didn't know that the the as Rob put it, the fuck you robot. <laughs> well, that's like, how they refer to it. They call right, it. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, but yeah, I didn't see that coming. I guess I don't see that coming as much in in literature as I do when it's in a movie. Had I have seen that same thing in the movie, I was like, oh, that's going to be a plot device later. The second I saw it, I think I would have recognized it. But reading it in a book. I was like, yeah, it's goofy CSU guys, and they've got this kind of goofy stuff laying around because that's how they're portrayed. So it's kind of a weird... Yeah, that's why I would say good on you, Rob, for catching that. I think Liv, not to be obnoxiously still on your team, but I think I was like, (laughs) oh, these two characters and their FU robot are just so annoying. I I, I wasn't thinking, oh, that robot's going to come back later and be like a key key guy. It was so... It's one of those things that was so like... Then on and to me it's like it, there's like a timer on certain things. If there's if there's too much time spent on something, then it seems unnaturally long. To me, that's when you know it's coming back later. Like if there's more emphasis than is absolutely necessary, it's coming back later. And that robot, I mean, it didn't even need to. You know, it didn't serve any purpose in the moment. Like it didn't. So I knew. You know, that's that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. In defense of of Ellis and anybody who <laughs> may want to read this book. After we're done talking about it, there's not really a robot that's a real central anything in this book. Because as I'm listening to us talk about this robot, someone's listening going, it's this right. police procedural, and now there's like a now fucking there's robot. Like a robot. And, right. yeah, so, so I want to say the robot is a toy, and it plays a very, very small part. So I'd like to not paint that picture for for, for the listeners. So Sure. And, and like I, I think I said at the beginning, uh, you know, I, 
think we're coming off, or I know I am coming off more angry with the book. That, I mean, I did, <laughs> you know, I would ultimately say, you know, people, I don't know, if, if you like procedurals, if you like Warren Ellis' stuff, you should definitely give it a read. Um, the conceit is pretty amazing and how, uh, as we talked about, the guns and the history tie everything together. But I think it was just because, like, Liv and, I don't know, if Rob, if you read Crooked Little Vein as well. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I so enjoyed that novel, and maybe it wasn't fair to me to go into this one with sort of similar expectations. Um, and, and I will say, I know going in right off the bat, I was disappointed. Like, oh, this is like a serious police procedural. I was looking for like a, another wacky fun ride, you know? Mm, I agree. And it's, it's something that, you know, expectations from, from a writer. And, and again, that was, this is kind of a, a, a genre change. But even it's got to be hard, you know. You read a book; it's it's your first exposure to somebody you absolutely love it, and of course, you're go- you, you, the only thing you can do when you open that second book is have the expectation that it's gonna be just as good as the first book you read by them. So, I mean, I I know that this book lost points for not being Crooked Little Vein too. I mean, I, I know that for myself that you know that that's the case. Um, Paul, I have a question for you. Have you lived? You've you lived on the eastern part of the country like your whole life or a significant portion of time yeah i've lived in and around boston massachusetts my whole life essentially okay let me ask you this because you're the only person that's on this podcast right now that's <laughs> lived there for a really long time um i noticed this on the wire and there was something else i was watching and now this <laughs> book which takes place in new york is it a common thing for people of the eastern part of the country to refer as a single person as a police Jeez, I didn't even see. No, uh, <laughs> I don't really. I don't hear that. No. Yeah. Okay. Because in this book, he did it, and and maybe he just watched way too much The Wire. This might play back into huh. him him being from England. But there were several through the course where he'd say, "Oh, uh, you know, she's a good police," which is not something we'd ever think of to say in the Midwest. Well, you know, in Boston, we use proper English. <laughs> yeah. Oh wow. So no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, geez, you know, I didn't even I didn't even pick I didn't even pick up on that in the book. But no, I've never heard anybody in New England or in the few times I've visited New York refer to uh, a police person uh, singular like that. It used to drive me nuts when I watched The Wire too, because they did it all the time. So maybe we could just chalk it up to Ellis watched a lot of The Wire, and that's where he got his lingo. Well, Baltimore. I mean, Baltimore's. I guess it's east, but it's more like south. It's sort of like a southern yeah. city. So I looked down my nose at the south. <laughs> Yeah, that, I mean, that's true. I mean, I guess that's pretty much right on the, you know, the border, right? Like, south and north, like, around that area. Yeah, I mean, DC, I think, you know, Philly, Boston. Technically... Yeah, Philly, Boston, New York. I mean, I, those are sort of your stereotypical, like, you know, north, northeast big cities. Those places, I've found, have similar sort of attitudes. And, they use the word uh, wicked a lot more. Wicked, absolutely. <laughs> I guess it didn't, you know, it did, and that's the trap I fell into. I, even though I know he's he's, you know, British, I, you know, the book was so, you know, overwhelming with the history of New York and stuff that I just took it for granted. I was like, oh, they say it in Baltimore and they say it in New York, but yeah, I guess I don't know that they say it in New York, so maybe they don't. Someone clue me in on this. If you, in your everyday conversation, refer to one policeman as a good police or a police. Let me know why, because I think pretty sure police is plural. Sean Ferguson, <laughs> we're asking you. You know, Livius, uh, you could have done some Googling on that, but uh, judging from your previous efforts, I don't know if it would have turned up much. Shut up, Rob. <laughs> God damn it. 
Uh, <sighs> all right. I'm not going to let a, an episode go by where I don't make fun of you about the Mayans. I know. I know. I know. Yeah. I know. I've got it. All right. So we're done with plot. I think we're done. Are we done punching holes in, <laughs> in Mr. Ellis yet? Can we talk about some good stuff? Sure. Okay. Um, Rob, what was good? Uh, <laughs> well, put me on the spot there. Uh, I don't know, dude. Like, if you if you like if you step away from like the book and not analyze it from you know, I, I'm I'm gonna try and be like from a writerly aspect, you know, where you're like you you have an expectation of certain like you know rules and stuff like that. I mean, the story is like Paul said a couple times. It's an excellent idea. I think it's a fantastic idea, and um, it's goddamn interesting. Like the way that they introduce. Um, like you said before, the history of the guns, talk about the history of New York and the way that all weaves together. It's it's a damn good story that way, if you ask me. Paul? Um, yeah, so for me, like the main conceit, I definitely was impressed. Um, I thought that was sort of brilliant how he put that together. Um, but I, you know, as as we've discussed for 40 some odd minutes now, you know, I really <laughs> had some issues with a lot of the sort of the nuts and bolts of the storytelling, which to me was disappointing because, you know, Ellis is definitely such an accomplished and brilliant writer, a brilliant graphic novelist. And, you know, his first novel, Crooked Little Dame, was so great with the, the original characters. So I definitely went into the novel with expectations. And I, I do think on some level, those expectations are fair based on the fact that my expectations weren't based on someone else's books. They were based on, you know, Warren Ellis's work. So great, uh, sort of great conceit, but I was disappointed in um, sort of how he went about pulling or trying to pull it off. I'm and I'm 100% on board with both you guys conceptually. I think that he had some just some just really genius. There's some things like we didn't talk about. We talked about the hunter and we really weren't really specific, but he kind of like envisions old Manhattan the way he thinks it was. Obviously, he's not a supernatural character. He's you know, some guy in maybe like his 40s or whatever. Um, you know, so that was really great. And then there was like that map concept. Yeah, the map. He thing. brought it up in in a couple different ways. There was the obviously today's New York, um, old Manhattan, I guess is what it was called before. So the Manhattan of old, they even goes into like this where he talks about maps of, of how technology, how, how information moves. And it was right. like this great kind of layered thing that was, was so, so appealing as, as a story concept. But then there were all the other things too, that they're kind of rolling in there. So, I mean, I was really, really torn through reading this book. There was so much that I really loved and, and, and ideas that I could really, you know, get into. And, 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 you know, obviously, as you said, there's 40 minutes worth of stuff that you can rewind and listen to, to hear about <laughs> the, the rest of it. So, um, yeah, I, I uh, it, it was just, it was very, very tough. And, you know, had I have read this and I, you know what, I enjoyed it and I, I, I breezed through it and I didn't, you know, I didn't find it hard to pick back up and read no matter what it was. It was an enjoyable book. So it's very, very torn. Had I have been reading this on my own with, and now when I read, I'm thinking like, you know, these are points I need to make and I'm going to have to rate this book. And, you know, so it gets much harder if I was reading this for my own leisure. I was, I really liked that book. It was a real enjoyable book. But I think I read it. We have to read it more critically because I have to tell people if they should be reading it or not. So, so very, very torn on this one. Uh, I mean, it seems like we kind of already just did our wrap ups to to a degree. Yeah, that's true. Um, Paul, we usually do a, a one to five star rating based on Goodreads because we, you know, we're that original. 
Right. Um, <laughs> so essentially, like, what is it? One is you hated it. Two is it was okay. Three is you liked it. Four is you really liked it. And five is you loved it. Right. So uh, you get. Would you would you have a, a, a rating for this, Paul? Well. So Goodreads doesn't have two and a half stars, which we we always do halves. Yeah, we do halves, which is what I would give it. Two and a half. All right, live. Um, you know, not to reiterate what I said. Conceptually, it just had me gripped. Um, man, characters though. God damn it. Uh, I'm gonna. I I seriously (laughs) had you had (laughs) had we have not had the CSU, and had we not have had the one big big coincidence that i mentioned earlier about them running into the guy's wife i probably would have put this at four to four and a half stars um given that i just i couldn't see past these these csu clowns it's three stars i I liked it 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 was enjoyable but just average i mean (laughs) well congratulations livius you gave a a rating that you failed to give the entire year 2012 yeah Uh, no kidding oh that's up to me then huh Hmm? um I liked it more than definitely if I'm looking at back at some of the like three star books that we had last year, I, I liked it more. I'm going to go three and a half. We got a little spectrum here. There we go. Nice. Yeah. So that's going to average out to three stars. Yeah. So, um, yeah, here's, here's what it is. Warren Ellis is a very, very prolific writer of graphic novels. I, I know he has a huge following. I, I was reading through his Wikipedia page and, and he must've been involved in, in 30 different, comic book storylines or you know however they're they're deemed you know in the comic books um he has the chops i mean he's a very very solid writer uh i just i don't know what happened here i just don't i don't, I don't know <laughs> can i throw out a quote and, it, and it's an example of of some of the things that i think i like more about this it's kind of longer sure. but um i think it it does something to maybe defend mr ellis a little bit uh this is uh closer to the beginning of the book about 19 percent so it's right when everybody's pretty much shitting on him for having found this apartment full of guns. Scarly actually says this to him uh, toward the beginning. Um, you know what you did when you put a hole in that wall? You interrupted the career of a genuine fucking boogeyman. Some crazy-ass ghost dog killer who filled a room with his fucking trophies to jerk off over. He's never going back there. And you know what else? He's going to start killing again, probably more and more quickly than before. So he can generate another trophy room slash jerking pit. Not only is this not getting solved, but more people are going to get killed because of it. And we won't catch him after those either because this guy is just too damn good. All you did, detective, is find the home address of the devil in New York City. And now he's moved someplace else. I like that a lot. I can't argue with that. It's great. Nah. Oh. <laughs> if there was more moments like that where it was like that was good drama to me at least um i think i would have yeah it would have been better i'd like to throw out two quotes to kind of give you the the spectrum so this is also from early on in the book 11 percent in people looked up as he moved down the middle of the space toward the corner office he wanted they didn't look at him so much as sniff the air decide that they didn't detect the kind of predator they feared most and return to work so I, I kind of like that. I like that as a as a as a vision. But but before before I get too carried away about how much I like that, let me find this. This is a quote from Bat, um, who your favorite. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't remember what it was. If it was that sandwich or whatever, but he says 
It's a fuck me bat gasp. It's like an angel shat ice cream coffee rainbows in my mouth. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> Can I? Okay, I have another one that I just I love because of how like it, I don't even know what to think about this quote, but it was the first line in chapter twenty eight. It's the opening line: "The hunter had time to kill." And to me, at the same time, it was like, oh, haha, time to kill. And it was like, oh, you know, like it was just like that. I could like I could see a joke falling on its face kind of, you know, I don't know. Hey, the one thing we didn't talk about, just because I have a note, I guess I wasn't looking at my my Kindle notes. Um, Throughout the course of the book, whatever Talos in his car, he's listening to the police radio. And I got to tell you, I liked some of the stuff. So all he's hearing is apparently New York is. 700 murders a day because in the course of a 15 minute ride he hears like 10 different police reports that are one's just more horrible than than the next um i liked that kind of that part although it seemed again a little overworked that you know he was hearing literally six or seven just crazy police reports all packed into just a couple minutes yeah and it was like it got really weird like someone crashed their bike and a spoke flew off and killed someone else did anybody catch that yep yeah that was a little bit kind of that that uh, a stretch if you ask me yeah I, i'm with rob on that one i really wasn't wild about because again it's it sort of the the setting that he did with new york most of the time i mean it felt like new york so that's why i i was a little bit taken aback about you know the whole near future thing and then having all these murders thing because i mean that's not new york city new york city doesn't have 700 murders a year or whatever or, you know, those seven grizzly murders, like he flipped on the radio for a second, like two or three times yep. in the book, and he's hearing it. So, you know, those are little things that are like, geez, you know, which is, again, too bad because the setting, he did such a great job with the setting and the history, but definitely undermines, like he had all these great ideas and he just wanted to sort of jam them in. That's sort of the, the right. sense I got for some of those things. Yeah, it, it seems like there were some concepts that like existed outside of the story that he just, like, it's like, I, I this is so nice, it needs to go somewhere. Sure. I mean, I get the point about, you know, sort of the cycle of violence and this gun machine, this perpetual violence almost machine, you know, so we really wanted to, to have that sort of underlying atmosphere. But, um, you know, it worked at times and, and it didn't work at other times. All right. One more question um, for you guys before we move on from from poor Warren Ellis. <laughs> um so, Paul, I'm not sure if you were aware of this or not. So, the kind of dropping uh, dropping this in your lap right now. But, um, what do you guys think about this as a TV show? Uh, yeah, so I, I saw that today as well. I just went by Warren Ellis's uh, uh, website to see that news. But I don't know. I mean, I guess there's potential. Um, I mean, definitely, we all talked about how the conceit would be pretty cool. We could see sort of sort of the Hunter and Tallow as being like an entire series arc, or not a series, but maybe a couple of seasons worth. For the whole thing, so I mean, there's definitely potential there, I guess. Um, but if it means I have to watch Scarly and Bat, I'm going to shoot my TV. Scarly better be really, really hot. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I think that um, done properly, it's it's it would do well if if certain aspects of the book were abandoned and others were focused on more or explored more, like the whole maps idea. Um, yeah, the, the whole... information maps, especially. That was a great. I forget who brought that up, but uh, I agree that was definitely very cool. Yeah, there was a lot of really interesting concepts that either he chose not to give time to, or just couldn't do justice to in the amount of time he had. That I think would do pretty well uh, in a more of a series, like a serialized thing. Mm-hmm. 
So yes, I'm all for it. I will watch it. Warren Ellis is going to like ban us from watching the show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe he won't hear this. All right. So, um, Paul, uh, thanks. I mean, uh, I, you know, I would have <laughs> loved to have said, hey, come on, review this book with us. And you go away going, those guys just brought me the greatest book I've ever read. <laughs> you know, that would have been really, really nice. So no, okay. no need to apologize. Like I said, you know, I'm definitely glad I read it. And, you know, more glad that I got to spend time talking about it with you guys. So. All right, and uh, moving on from the book, uh, kicking off 2013 is um, the very first booked news of the year. So here's, here's Skip Papersley. This is book news. I'm Skip Papersley. Now for the news. The famous P.G. Wodehouse character Jeeves is coming to life in a brand new BBC One program, Blandings. The show takes place at Blandings Castle and is set in the early 20th century to be centered around Lord Emsworth and his family, Pet Pig, and their butler Jeeves. Hearing the news, American television executives have already started working on their American adaptation. As of press time, it is a story about a proper English butler helping a modern American family with his sardonic wit and wisdom. The version is called Mr. Belvedere 2 Electric Boogaloo. In other news, popular authors Haruki Murakami and China Mayville are teaming up to write a brand new novel. From what this reporter could gather from their Twitter feeds, the book is going to be about a sad pair of pants that falls down a well in a dystopian future full of mechanical mischief and mayhem. Also, there will be electric flying carpets. Now for the New York Times bestsellers in fiction recap. Casually falling off the charts at number five is J.K. Rowling's Casual Vacancy. Someone is having a Merry Christmas, and it's James Patterson with Merry Christmas Alex Cross at number four. Scaring the competition, and in the third spot is Tom Clancy's Threat Vector. The number two spot is taken by my lovely and talented superwife Gillian Flynn with Gone Girl. John Grisham's book about a kid with vitamin D deficiency, The Ricketeer, is number one. This is Book News. I'm Skip Papersley, signing off. And what a way to kick off the new year. Skip uh, outdone himself there with a Murakami. I can't read it, man. It's, it's Murakami. I refuse to read any more Murakami. That's all I'm saying. I don't care who he partners up with. Um, there's a little bit of a dark side to that PG Woodhouse thing. Uh, does anybody really know much about him as a as a person? No. Has, have it, Paul, have you read any of him? No, I haven't. He created the character Jeeves and everything anyway. Um oh. <clears throat> so I uh, I've read several of PG Woodhouse's books and he's he's kind of uh he was introduced to me as the inspiration uh one of a one of the big influences on Douglas Adams. Um but anyway, uh kind of a dark history with PG Woodhouse. Okay, so he's from England uh and uh he, he was his books became popular in like the 20s and 30s. During World War II, I think he was basically taken prisoner by Nazi Germany. Um, and released under the Geneva Convention, but like it was like earlier than expected, so there was like suspicions that he was working with the Germans. And then he lived in German-occupied France, where he, I guess, was taking the war a little bit too lightly, and the things that he was writing, like essays or you know uh, things he was doing on the radio, were were misconstrued by the British government. Um, so that and they basically like they turned on him, uh, and and basically fell just short of like calling him like a traitor or like, you know, charging him with treason and stuff. So hmm. moved to the United States, lived the rest of his life in the United States, never went back. And um, all the fame and everything that came along with like his long writing career 
uh, he was eventually knighted, which he never accepted his knighthood. His wife did later on in life on his behalf. But uh, he was very estranged from his home country basically for the majority of his life. So it's kind of weird to me that the BBC is like capitalizing later in life on his fame when like there was this whole like dark side of his life that probably nobody really knows about. Oh, wow. To, to live through all that and then to write Mr. Belvedere Electric Boogaloo too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in his wow. twilight years, that's, you know. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you, I'd read that that, that breakdancing uh, Mr. Belvedere mashup before Murakami and anybody. So. Oh, so you're not, you don't like Murakami, huh? And that 1Q84, uh, that, oh, God, God. I read that and I read Hard... <laughs> Hardboiled Wonderland is that the oh, other I one? I love Hardboiled Wonderland. See, I just, yeah. I, I, it, you know, it was another one of those where I thought the concept was really cool, and I just didn't, couldn't, couldn't do it. So that's all right. But one Q84 has soured me on 900 page books. Yeah, um, yeah. not eager books to get by anybody from Asia. Wow. <laughs> I mean, a variety of things I will not do because of that book anymore. So. China Mieville too. Uh, kind of a, I don't know. We read that Rail C book. That's the only thing I've read by him, and I'm not, I wasn't that impressed. Oh, you need to read, uh, speaking of police procedurals, uh, The City and the City. Um, yeah. It's his take on the police procedural, and I think it's much more successful than uh, the book that we talked about earlier. Uh, I think it's China's best. <laughs> definitely, worth, definitely worth checking that out. I'm sure, I mean, Rail C, I think, is a young adult novel. Um, yeah, yeah. You should definitely read The City and the City, and it's reasonable, uh, reasonable number of pages for you, Liv. <laughs> no, I, I read it and I really enjoyed it. Oh, Again, did you? Okay. Huge concept that was just wonderful. So yes. I, I did really enjoy it. Um, so, okay, moving moving on. Um, Paul, we've mentioned on the show over and over, I don't know if you've heard it, or have you seen a film called Flossed? Short for fuckload of scotch tape. Okay. <laughs> no. Here is, here is your opportunity. So long-time listeners know, it was the only movie we've reviewed. We got to get in on an early screening. It was a Julian Grant adaptation of a Jed Ayers or two Jed Ayers short stories kind of mashed into into one film. Um, Rob, you want to tell them what's what's so cool and why we're mentioning it now? Uh, the nice thing is, um, I mean, Julian's really progressive in the way that he, he distributes his stuff. Um, and, and now he's actually got it as a 13-part webisode series that you can watch for free. Um, so uh, if you haven't, on our recommendation, bought the movie yet or rented it or anything, now we're going to share with you a way that you can watch it uh, in, in, in webisodes uh, for free. Free is good. Free is, is the best. <laughs> free is awesome. you got to give that shit away to get the kids to buy, man. That's right. That's, That's how right. it works. So. Um, but anyway, strongly recommend it. It's a little quirky, um, you know, give it, I don't know. I'm, I can't think to myself, like breaking it up into 13 parts. I'd say, give it at least two parts to see if you like it. I, I got to tell you everyone that, well, well, seriously though, Rob, everyone that we've turned on to it, that, you know, has come back and said to us, they've loved it. Yeah. So yeah. I'm really glad that it's available um, for more people to see and for free, for free. I'm sure there's probably a, a fuckload of scotch tape t-shirt you can buy. If you love it, you can probably get a hold of Julie and uh, buy a DVD copy. So, Hey, can I, I just think, say, uh, mm -hmm. In addition to uh, like how awesome it is, it's it's kind of it's kind of not. I think it's a new kind of concept. He calls it a noirzical, right? Mm -hmm. It is a noir musical. Yes. Um, so we've brought you a noirzical, and we brought you Josh Deach's stuff, which he terms a new genre, horror adorable. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're finding the cutting edge stuff here on Booked. 
That's right. My That's mind right. is being blown. Mm -hmm. as, as, <laughs> as we trip over it, we bring it directly to you. <laughs> exactly. S speaking of horror adorable, I can't even talk about this next part. Right? All right. So yeah. Livius is going to be spending however, however long, um, pretty much just nervously smoking cigarettes and pacing, uh, refreshing uh, the, the inbox and the email because the voting has closed for the This Is Horror uh, Awards for 2012, where we were nominated for Podcast of the Year. So uh, now it's just a waiting game to see if we actually walked away with an award or not. Oh, well, good luck. And, you know, the honor is being uh, nominated, of course. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah, so speaking as someone who's been nominated for awards on uh, numerous occasions and has lost every time. <laughs> that was the, like, she's probably not that great anyway kind of speech. Right. So um, Susan, uh, what's her name? Susan, uh, oh, geez. Who is that soap opera, uh, soap opera actress who was nominated for like 18 best Emmys oh, in a row? Um, Susan Lucci, there you go. Yes, yeah, Susan Lucci. <laughs> um, all I can say is that, you know, not only did I email from every email address I have access to, but I had to spend three hours convincing two police officers that I was not spending entirely too much time around the library watching small children. <laughs> <laughs> those computers, oh. I'm telling you, those kids walk away and they stay logged into their email, and then you go in and fire off another one. Nice. So, so 72 votes. Thank you, Round Lake Public <laughs> Library. Wow. Uh, yep, so uh, as soon as we know, we'll let you know, but until then, Livius is going to give himself an ulcer. <sighs> and yes, Rob, hotboxing is a thing. Is it? Okay. <laughs> it is a thing. So. Is that where you go like one, like one right to the next? No, no. Hotboxing is if you if you don't give the cigarette time to breathe on its own, you keep puffing it. The filter gets really, really, really hot. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, so it was like more contextually relevant than I even knew. Relevant than I even knew. Yes. <laughs> All right. What you got, Liv? What else have you got? All right. Well, I think that in honor of having Mr. Tremblay on the show, who is a confirmed table of content, what I don't even know what Guess. to call him, author, guest, author, uh, so. appearance, uh, dude. Somebody who's going to be in <laughs> yeah. our book. Sweet. <laughs> the guy in her book. Thank you, by the way, Mr. Tremblay, for a fantastic story. Oh, thanks. Uh, very, very excited about that one. But, um, Rob, let's tell, let's give the listeners another peek. Let's give them a couple more uh, TOC names. All right. Uh, we've, we've revealed 15 names. Should we go over the ones we have revealed so far? Um, if there's, yeah. Is that if there, too much? You know what? If there was a link that people could oh, go to and just see it. them themselves, right. then yeah. we wouldn't have to read all that. All right. We'll put a link up to uh, the list so far. But tonight we're going to reveal a couple more, a few more. And it's Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> I was so tempted to write a story and, and credit it to uh, James Patterson, but have the last, <laughs> have it E-N instead of O-N. Uh -huh. And that'd be my pen name. There you go. Uh, <laughs> all right. So <laughs> one of the names we've got... Uh, um, I'm going to kick off with is Todd W. Brown, T.W. Brown, Todd Brown. He's, his name shows up differently. Um, but anyway, Todd Brown is the guy that runs May December Publications. We've spoken about in the past. Uh, basically does a lot of zombie writing, horror writing, and stuff like that. He joined us in our first three-author episode. <sighs> wow, a long time ago. July. Like, yeah. July. Yeah. Months, months ago. Um <laughs> Anyway, he sent us over a story called Faces on the Milk Carton. And uh, so he'll be joining us uh, in, in our anthology. Oh, that's a good title. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Wait till you read the story. It's one of the stranger stories. 
I'll say we've yeah. got we've got a couple of really <laughs> weird ones, and his is his is really up there with uh with with the strange. So, all right. Um, another another table of content member. I, we've got really got to find a name for these people. Is <laughs> going to be that we're going to talk about um, Michael Paul Gonzalez, um, who is the head dude over at Thunderdome. Michael was on the show with us. Oh, Rob, when was that? Back when we talked about that in search of LA in a thousand words, yeah. But was last that was was that even 2012? No, no, it was 2011. Mm -hmm. So he was our guest a long, long time ago. He has at this point the longest story um, in this anthology called One Shot. Also a little weird, a little futuristic-y, pretty cool. Yeah, he clocked in just under 10,000 words. Is that revealing too much? That's a long story. It's a long story, but it's, it's a novelette. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And the third name we're going to announce tonight, this is going to take you all the way back to um, our fourth episode. This is our first indie book that we reviewed. Um, indie. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Because we reviewed some other. Okay. Yeah. Our first indie book that we reviewed, um, uh, which was When October Falls by Christopher Dwyer. We later had him on as an interview. Uh, I want to say like the 11th episode or so, but mm -hmm. he uh, <laughs> seemingly ignored our invitation <laughs> to be in the anthology for a long time. And then like out of nowhere, we weren't expecting anything because we, you know, he, he doesn't really seem to communicate too much. But like, boom, it just popped into our inbox one day. A story called Coralie, uh, very much, I'd say, in the style of When October Falls. So if you dug mm -hmm. that, you'll uh, you'll enjoy this story, too. Agreed. So there's uh, there's your three for this week: Michael Paul Gonzalez, Christopher Dwyer, Todd Brown. So we're getting we're getting close to the end. We may only yeah. have two or three more of these announcements to make. Yeah, hopefully because uh, <laughs> we want this book to actually exist soon. Yeah, so. I, I, there's still some exciting names coming up though. Yeah. I'm I'm looking at the document. It's like I want to I want to say something and I can't and I'm not going to. So <laughs> waiting for Jesus. more confirmations. Yes, Jesus. <laughs> Stephen King. Stephen King, yeah. <laughs> uh, the other story I'm going to write is by Steve King. So yeah. James Patterson <laughs> and Steve King will be in the book. I was going to try Jeb, Jeb King. There you go. I'm sure that someone has already tried that on Amazon, like self-pub stuff mm -hmm. under like Stephen King, but like with the, you know, the V instead of the PH or whichever. Yeah, so I'm, I'm sure someone's tried that already. So, all right. All right. We have anything else? Uh, I think we should tell the folks what's coming up next. Next week is going to be kind of busy. It is going to be busy. So last week, what was the one thing I promised for this year? More interviews. More interviews. So um, next week, we are going to be interviewing Cameron Pierce. Cameron Pierce? That guy owes me money. <laughs> we are going to see if we can collect your money. Thank you. Um, for you. <laughs> yeah, send us your PayPal and we'll, we'll see if we can. All right. Yeah. So um, Cameron Pierce, amongst other things, is the head guy at Lazy Fascist and and the author of Ask Goblins of Auschwitz, which came up during our, Rob, during which episode? Oh, our intro to Bizarro episode, which I think was episode number 62. Rain and Or 60, one of those two. Um, he, surprisingly, big advocate of our, our podcast. He's always on Facebook liking stuff and sharing stuff. Cameron's all over the place. It's because he owes me money. He is. He's trying to sweeten us up. <laughs> He's working off the debt. This is the equivalent of like washing dishes in the kitchen. We can't pay for dinner. Paul's like, listen, just go click the like button on these guys like 40 times. I knocked the VIG down to 3%. Yeah. Oh, wow. You just said VIG like you're, wow, like a loan shark or something. Maybe. 
I learned oh, what that meant in the uh, the Repairman Jack book. That's the first time I really heard Vig before. Wow. And I looked it up like a dutiful reader. Sheltered life. That or you've never had to borrow money from an Italian guy, one of the two. So, But Rob, that's not all we're doing. So that's one episode we're doing next week. That's right. The other one we're going to do, uh, uh, upon the recommendation of Matthew McBride, I think he even said, I think in the episode he even said like, that he was gonna he was gonna make the editor of the book send us copies because he's so uh, enthusiastic about the book, and they did uh, uh, very graciously send us a, a copy to read for the show. Uh, Hell on Church Street by Jake Hinkson uh, is the book that we're reading for next week. Uh, notably, I was reading up I was on the website for it earlier today, and there's a quote from Scott Phillips uh, where all right and Scott Phillips we've all I mean we know about Scott Phillips he's not. He's kind of rough. He's got. A, he's kind of a rough dude. He's. He, you know what I'm saying? And he said he was shocked by it. So, um, it makes me a little. It's a little. That's intimidating. <laughs> if you ask me. Anyway. I don't know. I'm apparently completely desensitized. So, this is. Yeah. So I don't know. But yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And and we laid the blame right where it belongs. Matthew McBride's feet. If we don't like it, it's that's all right. on him. Yeah. So. And Paul, it's too bad you're not reading that because that might be really good. No, I actually just looked it up on uh, Amazon. It looks interesting. Mm-hmm. It looks pretty rough, though. It looks like a, a hard, a hardcore book. Some pretty hardcore crime. Hey, before we head out, Paul, uh, anything you got going on you want to talk about? Uh, no, I mean, hopefully I'll get my money from Cameron soon. <laughs> He's going to be uh, at the AWP, so if you're going to, oh, uh, which, which is in Boston, so you can right. shake him down in person. He said not to tell anybody. Oh, damn it. <laughs> So I guess my, my, most, my most recent short story came out in an anthology called Fungi, um, edited or co-edited by Oren Gray and Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. Uh, it's a really fun book. And uh, as you can guess, all the stories sort of involve mushrooms or some sort of fungus. Um, you know, the stories from Nick Mamatas, uh, Laird Barron, John Langan, uh, Jeff Vandermeer, yeah, Jesse Bullington. Some really cool writers. Molly Tanzer, who just had a really uh, very cool collection come out from uh, Lazy Fascist Press. And a weird story about mine that somehow mixes mushrooms and the fear of flying. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. And otherwise, still, hopefully, people will buy my donkey novel. I guess that's always on the back burner. As well they should, sir. Absolutely. As well they, they should. should. Yeah. Yeah. Buy my book, Pierce, instead of paying me back. And then we'll call it even. <laughs> wow, that's very generous of you. Thanks. Cameron, you got a friend in this guy. All right, Paul, thanks one more time for taking the time to, to do this with us again. It's been a lot of fun. Sure, thanks. Yeah, had a blast. Anytime. All right, well, that's going to do it for this episode of Booked. Until next week, I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Keep reading. These little towns.